0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Julia Walker about her book, Berlin Contemporary, Architecture and Politics After 1990, which came out in November of 2021 with Bloomsbury in the series Visual Cultures and German Contexts. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Julia Walker is Associate Professor of Art History at Binghamton University, where she's also Associate Director of the Institute for Advanced Study in the Humanities. She received her MA and PhD in Art History from the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in modern and contemporary architecture and theory. Her teaching and research focus on contemporary architecture culture with particular emphasis on the ways in which architectural ideas, forms, and materials from the early years of the 20th century were absorbed and transformed in contemporary practice. These questions are especially charged in the projects that comprise her first book that we're discussing today, Berlin Contemporary, which looks at the government architecture and urban planning of Berlin after the fall of the Wall and after the official reunification of Germany. Her second book project, which is now underway, is tentatively titled Why They Left, Women After Architecture, which recovers the histories of women who studied and practiced as architects before leaving or being pressured out of the field. Walker has also published articles on the architecture of Zaha Hadid, Rem Kohlhaas, and Daniel Liebeskind, among others. Her work has been supported by the DAAD, the Deutsche Akademische Austauschdienst, the Society of Architectural Historians, the Walter Benjamin College at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and the Ellen Uram Kashak Institute for Social Justice for Women and Girls. And our book today, Berlin Contemporary, will examine architecture and urban planning after Berlin reunified and reveals how its iconic new government structures embody the unsettled contradictions that animate global contemporary architecture culture as a whole. But before we get into depth on your book and Berlin's sort of high profile architectural projects and debates of the last decades, I'd like to ask you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the field of architecture, of German studies, very interdisciplinarily, or or maybe Berlin itself.
1: (laughs) Sure. Well, um, I came to architectural history um, slowly and surely. I I come from a sort of family of architects and urban planners. Um, My father's an architect, and I, I very much kind of grew up thinking in architectural terms. Um, And so when I was applying for graduate schools, you know, I knew I wanted to pursue architectural history and I knew that I wanted to focus on the 20th century. Um, And when I started at Penn working with um, David Brownlee, the wonderful David Brownlee, um, an architectural historian who um, researches the 19th and 20th centuries, I found myself being drawn over and over to um, to places, to sites, to moments where architecture was being sort of called upon to perform political meaning in some kind of way. Um, and I was especially drawn to sites of political intensity where confrontations of some sort were taking place and therefore the architecture of these places Um, was being summoned to represent sometimes competing ideas. And of course, that leads somewhat naturally to Berlin. And when I started my dissertation research, not much time had passed. In fact, really little time had passed at all since the completion of some of these projects in Berlin um, that were built by the federal and local governments after reunification. And so I was working without a lot of hindsight in some cases, and without any hindsight in other cases, you know, some of these projects like the Humboldt Forum are only just now being completed. And so as I was conducting this research, much of which was in sort of government archives in Berlin and throughout Germany, I was struck by the degree of (laughs) sort of neon incandescent anxiety that permeated all of this work. Um, the anxiety that architecture would succeed or fail, that it would send the right message or the wrong message politically, that it would perform the right international negotiations or the wrong ones. And so as I kind of finished up my dissertation, I felt a little frustrated by the fact that the dissertation itself reflected that anxiety, that the, you know everything was unresolved, everything was sort of tense, everything was very fraught. Um, but I found myself unable to come to what I felt were satisfactory conclusions about what this moment meant in Berlin. And it's interesting that not very many years after the completion of these projects, I feel that the door has been cracked. Like I have a little bit of retrospect on this work now, partly because I think we're in a different historical moment than we were when I started this research. And so it's possible to look even at very contemporary projects, historically, I think, Um, and to see them as expressions of sort of um, political aspiration, to see them as expressions of collective sort of longing, um, to see them as the expression of hopes for what um, the newly reunified Germany was going to be within the world, um, and possible to look at them with just a little bit of hindsight at this point. And so that's how that's how it started. And I'm very glad that it has continued because I certainly have not gotten tired of um, examining Berlin and its architecture. There's much more to be done.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is something you touch on, is this notion that Berlin is constantly in flux and that Berlin is this ever-changing um, space of, of intersection and conflict and and cranes filling the sky. And every time I return to Berlin, I'm almost like, what, "What? when was that high rise there? Um, and, and I think you, also, you just touched on this as well, is that Berlin is both a highly specific place with highly specific tensions and, and, and circumstances, but it also enables you, it's an entryway for you to talk about larger issues of uh, contending with historical memory and the, the sort of critical work done by architecture in a space more globally and global issues of contemporary architecture. Um, I was wondering if you could expand a bit on that and um yeah how you married those 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 two ideas
1: yeah i think this is a a kind of a really important point because if if we're talking about contemporary architecture i think we need to be specific because really contemporary architecture means you know everything that's being built today from the gas stations on up right um And what I'm trying to talk about in this book is is not exactly that. It's contemporary architecture culture, this very specific subset of contemporary architectural projects um, that for many people kind of in the public are, are what makes up contemporary architecture. So these are the very, very high profile iconic buildings, right? The Guggenheim Bilbao is like the signature example of what I mean by contemporary architecture culture. It's the buildings that seek to stand out, to make a statement, you know, whether it's a statement about culture, a statement about politics. um, It's the ones that make use of often very sort of high-tech materials, you know, glass and steel and maybe um, kind of titillating, fragmented um, sort of forms. Um, It's also the culture that is made up of this kind of galaxy of star practitioners. And, you know, again, the signature example is, is Frank Gary, who, you know, most architects are not household names, but Frank Gary through the 1990s kind of gradually became sort of a household name. There was an episode of the Simpsons featuring Frank Gary. Um, and of course the assumption was that everyone kind of everyone watching the Simpsons, at least everyone knew who he was and knew that, you know, you could sort of make fun of his crumpled forms, and that it would be funny. Um, And so of course, there's a whole, um, let's say architecture of um, who the architect is within this contemporary architecture culture that's really important to me. It's very masculinist. It's very swaggering. Um, You know, the idea is that these are these are artists who are um, performing these iconic architectural gestures and kind of transforming the landscape for us. And, you know, this is important in a lot of ways and a lot of different contexts too. But one of the ways that it's important is that it's just not, it's just not true. Um, these high-octane international firms are made up of hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people. Who are contributing to getting these these buildings built, and so there's a lot behind the sort of lone ranger figure of the star architect that needs further examination, and I don't necessarily do that in the book. Instead, what I do is is point to the contours of this contemporary architecture culture in a way that I hope makes it a little strange for the reader. Um, it makes it a little bit unusual instead of being the immersive architecture culture that we're living in globally.
0: That is fascinating as well to think about all of the labor that is involved in not only designing these buildings that do get made, but also those that don't get made. You talk about these competitions for building, for example, for example, the Uh, federal buildings, the Spreebogen on the the Spree River. And of course, many of these architecture firms around the world are rejected, um, but have fully thought out plans for these these, uh, architectural projects. I want to return to this architect though, because you begin the book um, with Sir Norman Foster uh, as another example of one and the celebration of his Pritzker Architecture Prize. So how do you think that this example of his work on the Reichstag building served as an important starting point, entry point for looking at the hopes and contradictions embedded in the process of rebuilding Berlin after the wall?
1: So this is the um, the 1999 um, award ceremony of the Pritzker Architecture Prize, which is then and today um, considered the most important architecture prize awarded internationally. And it's only been in... Um, operation since 1979. It's really a pretty new thing, um, but it has the reputation still of being a sort of architectural kingmaker. Like to win a Pritzker is a really, really big deal. Um, and always before 1999, the ceremony had taken place at some architecturally significant place. The White House, for example the Getty Center. Um, This was the first time in 1999 that the location of the ceremony was a city, the whole city, and it was Berlin. And I think that this is really, really significant because it points to something else that I think we take for granted. And by we, I mean everyone, the public who cares about international affairs. And that's the fact that when Berlin was rebuilding itself politically after the fall of the wall and Germany's official reunification in 1990, when it was rebuilding politically, that was expressed most visibly in its rebuilding architecturally. And so as the, nine, as the um, 90s and then into the early aughts, as that time period wore on, no one was questioning that the political rebuilding and the architectural rebuilding were these sort of twinned enterprises. It was taken for granted that the one was an expression of the other, and that therefore the architecture would condition the politics of the New Berlin sort of reciprocally, right? So the political rebuilding and the architectural rebuilding were um, intertwined in ways that even now today, I think it can be hard to unpack. And so therefore, this celebration of the Prisker Prize, the celebration of Foster himself, the architect of the Reichstag, um, kind of identified Berlin as a center of the most important new trends in architecture and sort of forecast directions for the future of the profession as well. And so this um, this celebration, which now kind of I don't know, from from the perspective of 2022, it seems kind of decadent, the whole whole proceedings. Um, You know, it put important sites on the map in Berlin, it drew international architectural attention to the city, and it made the very public declaration that Berlin was not only a world city, it was sort of the world city of the future.
0: We then move on to uh, the next chapter where you look at the... Planning polit- the, the politics of planning the architecture of the Spreebogen, which we mentioned earlier, which is a sort of federal administrative center in Berlin along the river. So, here we have a couple of new important star architects enter into the frame um, Axel Schultes and Charlotte Frank, and they were ultimately successful in their bids. So, I was wondering if you could then tell us a bit more about these very public debates and how these twin processes of political and architectural rebuilding took place in selecting this plan and then ultimately in in terms of um, actually putting it into practice?
1: Yeah, this is a really, really interesting competition because I think that most people who are familiar with Berlin, they know the Reichstag building. They maybe don't. Know what it's called, but it's become so iconic of Berlin that it's kind of superseded architectural interests. Like it is, it is a visual indicator of Berlin. This is not the case with the rest of the so-called government district along the Spreebogen. It has not become um, something that circulates internationally as an image of reunified Berlin or reunified Germany. But at the moment of the competition in 1992. This was the hope, that it would become as iconic as the mall in Washington or any other kind of major center of a, of a capital. Um, and this competition in 1992 is particularly interesting because it was the largest architectural competition ever held to date. In the world, um, it was the most expensive. The government was pouring money into this competition, partly funded by you know investors into the city of Berlin, um, and the hope was that the urban plan that came out of the competition would not only become iconic, but would also express um, how to say this. It would it would express the consternation that Germany ongoingly felt. About its past. And that's frankly really, really difficult to do in an urban plan. How do you express regret? How do you express consternation? How do you express um, processes of coming to terms with the past that are so central to official German identity today in an urban plan? Urban plans are necessarily sort of totalizing to read as. Um, unified urban schemes—they kind of have to be totalizing. And so, what seemed so appealing about Schultes and Frank's proposal on paper was that it seemed—it seemed fragmented. It seemed both assertive and optimistic, and at the same time, fractured, sort of broken by these ruptures in the past that were so important to the German government to express in built form. And. I, you know, I would, um, it's it's my opinion that, that the excitement over this plan was really warranted because on paper, it does read as simultaneously monumental and sort of broken. And as the competition process moved forward, and then as the building of that district moved forward, these little erosions started to take place. It was sort of death by a thousand cuts. Um, In the first place, there was a sort of massive wave of um, cuts on government spending that inherently meant that less money was going to go towards these projects. Um, At the same time, doubt started to be expressed over whether it would be possible to um, uh, kind of express doubt and consternation in such a monumental form. And so, one of the one of the parts of this plan that was really really important to its architects was a public forum. So, an open space, but one that had sort of seating for the public, one that was supposed to be a place for public festivals, but also for protest. Um, and that just got kind of chipped away. And now, if you're in Berlin, it's actually a roadway. You, you know, cars are driving through it. So, the public forum was erased in the long run. Um, Schultes was very, very frustrated by this. And the whole kind of space today remains slightly illegible, not just kind of as a band of buildings, but also just as an urban space. It has an unfinished kind of quality to it that's frustrating to its architects. And this has resulted in the government not really trumpeting it as a success story in the same way that it trumpets the reichstag by using it you know in official um you know websites literature whatever so this was for you know in in as i describe it in the book it's a moment where the possibilities of reunification seemed frustrated by the realities of reunification
0: indeed i i mean now that you you point this out it's finally put into words some of the feelings that one might feel walking around these spaces. It does feel sort of unanchored. And um, so I think that that was a really fascinating sort of walk through the course of this, this competition, and also some some of its sort of fragmentation um, until its actual completion. Um, I was wondering if you could also perhaps expand on some of Schulte's ideas for what his sort of, theoretical aspirations were for this project, his ideas of allegory, for example, rather than the space, these these buildings as symbols.
1: Yeah. So so Schultes says that what he wanted, and I'll point this out because I think it's important. We are talking about a partnership that is Schultes and Frank, a man and a woman. Schultes is sort of the loquacious spokesperson of the firm. And so I kind of follow the firm's lead And speaking of Schultes. (laughs) However, it is always Schultes and Franck. So he writes a lot. Franck does not. And in some of his theoretical writings, he said that he wanted this band of federal buildings, Bandus Bundes, as he called it, um, to be an allegory of reunified Germany. And his understanding of that term was that, first of all, an allegory isn't a narrative, right? It's not as straightforward as a, nar- a narrative. There are feints. There is can be irony. There can be sort of changes of direction um, that are not as straightforward as Germany went through hard times. But look, now it's triumphantly a democracy again. Schultes didn't want to do that, rightly so. And so he said that he was going to present this allegory that that had all of the all of the breakages of the past built into it. All of the areas that remain difficult to understand, all of the parts that were still unknowable, he wanted to kind of build that in to the plan, as well as optimism for the future. And that's interesting, because I think that he, in fact, did get the allegory that he wanted. But allegory, in this case, doesn't sort of add up to anything. It's not one that then becomes legible, the public. It's not one that's able to be read and understood as an allegory of reunification. Even if it might functionally be one, it can't be easily interpreted. And one of the most important realizations that I had in the writing of this chapter was that Schultes and Frank were up against an impossible foe, because they were attempting to make an iconic piece of architecture, And what could have been more iconic than the Berlin Wall? (laughs) What could have been more successful as a, a, a modernist urban plan than the Berlin Wall? It did everything that modern architecture was supposed to do. It did the most with the least means, to use Norman Foster's words, right? There's not a lot of material. There's not a lot of ornament. But it made its statement in no uncertain terms. And so... That very fact, I think, surfaces allegorically in Schultes and Frank's plan, which is itself a kind of, um, it's not completely different from the Berlin Wall in that it's a long stretch of something. So it resurfaces allegorically, but it doesn't quite add up to anything clear.
0: And you just touched on um, Foster's idea of working with the, the most, with the least, doing the most, the least means, if I'm paraphrasing, uh, which brings me then to the theme of lightness in your next chapter. And I also appreciate that you also bring in um, some, some literary tools also in your analysis. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how the Reichstag relates to this, what you call the discourses of lightness and what tensions must the building have to negotiate in its new iteration so you start with the wrapped Reichstag project in 1995 and then in Foster's, uh, to Foster's reconstruction.
1: Yeah, and you know, I feel like Berlin is haunted by its ghosts. I'm haunted by my past as an English major. And so I'm very, very sort of attentive to the way that these buildings are are talked about, whether by architectural insiders or outsiders. And so anytime, you know, a certain word comes up a lot, or a certain kind of phrase is used to describe them, um, I, I start to think that that's important. And I noticed that with the Reichstag, the kind of idea of lightness was something that Foster certainly made use of in his explications of the building, but it was also one that journalists, writers, you know, bloggers um, were using to describe this building. And so I wanted to kind of drill down into what lightness meant in this context. And of course, one of the things that was interesting about working on the Reichstag is that it's this, I mean, of high profile contemporary architects and architecture, you know, it's It's way up there. This is not a building I had to dig deep to find information about. <laughs> in fact, the problem was that there was too much information about it, so much that I felt it had sort of become hard to see it clearly and hard to see it critically. Um, you know, for example, uh, Foster's firm, if you're if you're a scholar and you're in contact with them, they have press packages that are put together for scholars that they kind of send you as a package. Like, here's what you need to know about the building. And it can be hard to get beyond their very often very eloquent sort of packaging of it. So in order to look at it clearly, I decided to kind of look, look to the side of it or look at different moments in its history, including Christo and Jean-Claude's wrapping of the building in 1999 Um, But also including the original proposal for the building that won Norman Foster the competition in 1992, which was very much not what was built. Um, And then finally kind of concluding with one very important aspect of the renovation, which is the preservation of um, graffiti that was left by Soviet soldiers during the Battle of Berlin in 1945 throughout the building. And so in looking at these sort of three different um, iterations of the building, I saw that this theme of lightness permeated all three. And the need for this building was to sort of lighten its historical load and to do that in visual terms, to do that in terms that a casual viewer would understand almost without thinking about it, almost instinctively. They would understand that this lightning was going on to, you know, give the building um, a viable future. But at the same time, lightness can't mean glibness or flipness. And this is where I think Foster really shines as an architect um, dealing with adaptive reuse, dealing with existing historical buildings. He is very good at finding ways to articulate the pendant weights of history that's necessary for that lightness to make sense. And one of the arguments I make about this building is that it's always expressing both, always showing the reader both. We have the heaviness of the historical architecture of the building, always offset by the lightness of this glass and steel dome. And one without the other wouldn't work.
0: And I presume that the original plan for the Reichstag's reconstruction was not part of the press packet that you were given, which brings me sort of to my next question is sort of what did you, what was the process for digging a bit further, whether it was at Foster's firm, whether what it was looking at Schultes and Frank's uh, designs, or any of the other examples that you discuss or the, the unsuccessful design plans that you investigated for your project?
1: it involved i mean again involved a lot of sort of government research where i also found that there was sort of press ready information about the projects as these competitions unfolded in the 1990s of course the media the media was a key part of the process of these competitions the international media i should say and so the Um, the proceedings of all these, these competitions were published and they were very kind of highly publicized. The public's opinions, especially Berliners' and Germans' opinions, were kind of sought about them. And so there was a lot of kind of gathering of material that happened particularly at the dissertation stage in archives in Berlin. Once I had that material, though, I realized that uh, essentially, it wasn't going to interpret itself, that it all of it needed to be read. And in a lot of cases, what I found I had to do was r- sort of read between the lines. So not to take something like this, this s- striving for lightness at face value, but really to drill down into both the semantic and historic meanings of that term in architecture. You know, not to take, um, in other cases the kind of standoff between tradition and modernity at face value, but to see what was behind that debate in the first place. And so a lot of what I tried to do throughout the book was to s- step back and read almost as though these were all kind of alien concepts to me, um, step back and, and
0: read them really, really critically. And one of the, highly debated structures that you you look at you explore in the third chapter, which is the German chancellery, specifically in this sort of governing district um, near, the, near the river. What were the particular controversies that were surrounding this building? And you talk about, again, I appreciate the, the incorporation of, of the literary perspective, this preoccupation with ruins, um, which also connects to the idea of allegory. So how did this preoccupation with ruins influence the culture of rebuilding in Berlin um, and how the rebuilding of Berlin sought to deal with both the past and envisioning itself in the future as a future ruin? Mm-hmm. I,
1: I think that for me, this is still the most sort of anxiety fraught <laughs> section of the book and sort of section of Berlin's rebuilding, um, having to do with the construction of the chancellery, Um, which is the largest government seat in the world. Um, Much, much larger than the White House, um, much, much larger than the Elysee Palace or sort of comparable structures. And it also seemed a kind of impossible task because on the one hand, it seemed clear as the government decided to reoccupy Berlin as the capital of Germany, it seemed clear that assertiveness was necessary, that it... Architecture and planning could not simply rely on the sort of pastoral modernism that had characterized um, Bonn, you know, this kind of um, temporary capital, always intended to be temporary, at least by West Germany. So something more assertive was called for that acknowledged Germany's role in world affairs, especially as a sort of economic powerhouse. And so the competition for the chancellery was different from the other two that I've discussed here, both the Spreebogen competition and the Reichstag competition, because it was already sort of cynical. Exhaustion kind of set in very, very quickly after the initial euphoria and excitement of reunification. So already by the time of the chancellery competition, competition, which was held in 1994, it seemed as though... Things weren't going well. Um, Investors were backing out. The government was having to make this wave of cuts towards these projects. Um, Already, it seemed like international kind of reception for the government's plans was very kind of divided. And it seemed clear on the one hand that this thing needed to be, in some sense, monumental, but it also needed to be deferential, or at least it needed to be self-aware. It needed to express its awareness of Germany's complicated past. So once again, this is saddling architecture with enormous, enormous historical weight. How, how exactly does a building do that? And the, the, Once again, the competition debates were really, really interesting, because one of the things that I think characterizes contemporary architecture culture, and I return to this over and over again in the book, one of the things that I think characterizes contemporary architecture culture is a tendency to think in binaries. So something is either traditional or it's modern, it's either classical or it's modern, um, It's hard to be both. And particularly this latter one, the kind of um, binary of classicism and modernism was really, really powerful in the competition debates. And of course, the problem was that, well, this building couldn't be classicizing in any way because forever classicism was tainted by Hitler's um, appropriation of it as an architectural idiom and of course his most well-known architect Albert Speer's use of it throughout um, Berlin and the plans to make it the um, capital of the the world essentially in the Third Reich. Um, So classicism was off limits and therefore monumentality as a concept was sort of much debated because of its close linkages to the classical past. And Over and over, both in the chancellery competition and in other ones, there's this ambivalence expressed by politicians, by architects, by the public towards the architecture of the past. So it was understood that at the one time, uh, on the one hand, this building needed to gesture to the past. It needed to root itself in sort of the best of Germany's architectural heritage. But it needed to do that while also turning its back on the worst of Germany's architectural heritage. And the thing is, both of those heritages are classical. (laughs) The classicism of Hitler and Speer is off limits. The classicism of Karl Friedrich Schinkel, of um, Jolie, of these sort of uh, wonderful architects, romantic architects of the 19th century, that was the real lineage. And so there are a lot of kind of tortured debates over like what this column capital means or whether this support is a column or a pier or a pillar or what um, to insert the chancellery into the one heritage and reject the other heritage.
0: And this fraught relationship with history, so it's a tall order that a building would have to negotiate these, these, these various paths, while also having an obligation to do so and looking forward. I believe it was in the fourth chapter. You mentioned um, a prank model that was designed or that was called Schinkel's Dream, I think, Um, that was a prank done by Schultes, uh, if I remember correctly. Could you tell us a bit more about that and sort of what the aim was and what the sort of positioning in history was, was, was being considered there.
1: Yes, this is... this is a, I mean, it's a very funny but very tiny kind of moment um, in this history. So Schultz kind of emerges as the major figure of the rebuilding of Berlin, the federal government's rebuilding of Berlin. Um, and he's not someone who has become a household name. He's not well-known outside of Germany. Um, but he is... He's kind of a mercurial figure. He's... Um, He's very, very passionate about about what he does. He he has very kind of strong opinions about what is and is not right um, in any given project. And so, when there was a competition to replan the Sprayinsel, um, he decided a prank was in order. Um, a little background first: this is the location of the historical city palace, the Stadtschloss, um, which had been uh, it was a Baroque building that had been kind of constructed and changed over many, many centuries, and then was dynamited by the Soviets in 1950. And that's a very, very kind of complicated story on its own. It's worth pointing out that many of um, the East Germans in power thought this was a bad idea. They thought that was an important building that should be saved. Um, In its place, In 1976, that's the completion date, was built the Palace de Republique, the parliament building of East Germany, in this kind of (laughs) exuberant modernistic style with this kind of cognac tinted glass and uh, marble kind of framing. And this was supposed to be not only the kind of parliament building, but also like a palace of the people. And so it had bowling alleys and cafes and discotheques, a post office that was open every day of the week. Um, and you know, this was a place that still today many people who lived in East Berlin have quite fond memories of. Sometimes you could even hear non uh, state approved Music there. So it was very exciting. Um, in any case, the replanning of the Ansel involved deciding what to do with this now defunct parliament building, which was kind of lying there closed, filled with asbestos, and very much kind of up for debate. And Schultes was one of many people who thought that some sort of reference to the Stadtschloss needed to be rebuilt not necessarily a replica of it, which is what it, what ended up happening, um, but some sort of reference, especially to his massing, um, which is very important at the end of Unter den Linden, that kind of main spine of Berlin. And so as the competition wore on, in cahoots with Tilman Budensieg, who's an important art historian, uh, Schultes produced this this. Fake model was produced, and the claim was that it had been found in a trove of looted Soviet artifacts and had been brought back to Berlin. But that it was by Schinkel and it was a plan for the Spraenzel. And one of the things that Schultes wanted to do here, and I think he did pretty effectively, was point out that Sch- Schinkel was the only one anyone seemed willing to listen to. This architect of the early 19th century seemed to represent the only sort of usable future for Berlin. And so Schinkel wanted to, I'm I'm so sorry, Schultes wanted to point out that history was kind of calling the shots. History, like in quotes, was calling the shots in the rebuilding of the new Berlin instead of, you know, common sense or criticality or anything else. And this didn't, this little kind of prank, it didn't make a big splash. At first, people were like, Alluded Schinkel model. This is great, and then everyone was like, "Oh, you're just you're you're being provocative. Let's move on." Um, this is not an often recounted anecdote, but for me, it's really perfect because it does point out the competing ideas of what history means. We can't speak of history like it is something, right? History is contested; it's negotiable, um, especially in architecture. You're never telling the whole story that's not possible so i think it's an effective prank even if it was perhaps a little bit you know not not appreciated in its own time
0: yeah and it's fascinating the desire to sort of skip over certain pieces of history and that also connects to something that you touch on in the chapter as well which is that eastern german history doesn't quite fare very well ultimately it was pieces of the Stadtschloss that were rebuilt not a rebuilding of the you know Asbestos ridden, but hopefully no longer asbestos ridden Palast de Republique.
1: <laughs> right. And you know, I find that to, to me this is an ongoingly strange story. And this is partly important to me because it was happening as I was conducting my research. This was a story that was very much not finished while my dissertation research was going on. And I have to say that in retrospect, I didn't I didn't actually believe that the Palast would be knocked down. Because I have to agree with Ram Kolhas, who says this is insanely ahistorical. Like knocking this down is insanely ahistorical, which is a very punchy description of it. Um, And of course, you know, over the course of many, many years, different uses for the building were proposed, different possible renovations that took it, you know, distanced it from the East, but kept it um, as a monument to people's memories. Um, And all of those were sort of shuffled aside by the government. And one of the things that's important to me is that this, Basically, um, replication of the Stadtschloss by the Italian architect Franco Stella is r- described in a lot of critical reviews as not contemporary, right? The rest of Berlin is, has become contemporary. This is not contemporary. This is backwards looking. Um it's kind of the whatever the opposite of avant-garde is our ear guard <laughs> um, this is a backwards looking kind of thing and it's important to me to recognize that no it's not it is part of contemporary architecture which structures things in these binaries so throughout the process of planning for this site, it increasingly became tradition or modernity we can do one but we can't do both. And then once the government cast its lot with tradition, it was over. And you could have done anything with this site. You'd, it wasn't a matter of preserving the Palast or reconstructing the Stachloss. Anything was possible. And in fact, one architect, Fry Otto, said at an important moment in the proceedings, we shouldn't do anything with it right now. Let's just keep keep it keep it like it is, or keep it as a void, and let history move forward a bit, and then we can talk about what to do with it. But nothing alternative was ever seriously considered, because that's how how entrenched those binaries had become.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that this is still a developing story, and I believe that at the time that you probably hit send on this manuscript, the Humboldt Forum had not quite opened, but it did Begin opening during the pandemic, I think late 2020 or so. So now that you know you have b- barely any hindsight, but you have now completed this book. If you were able to add an addendum to append a half a chapter to it, what might you want to add about the now opened Humboldt Forum? There have certainly been a lot of contr- controversies surrounding it before and since its opening. It's true. And that's
1: partly to do with what's on view inside, which was um, which was attached to the project after it was decided that the Statschloss would be replicated. And it is, um, it's essentially a museum. It's a cultural forum um, that showcases collections formerly housed in like suburbs of the city, especially in Dahlem, um, of, of, quote, non-Western art. And, you know, for a lot of people, that very fact is like a it's a it's a pretext, right? If we show something that doesn't seem to be kind of (laughs) reasserting problematic values from the past, if we showcase something that itself seems, I don't know, like, politically and historically progressive, then we don't have to worry about what's happening with this building. But, you know, that's got its own problems, because there are there's tons of questions of provenance. There are tons of objects in this, in these collections that are um, that, you know, for which repatriation is desired. Um, So that itself has not proven the successful pretext that the government hoped. Um, And then the building itself. I, I say this not as a historian, but as just a viewer, the building itself is bizarre. It has this, simulated quality in its built form it looks like a rendering of itself and it has not quite succeeded in drawing a sort of broadly affectionate following to its walls because of course part of the idea of a cultural forum is that it doesn't just house museums it's got you know places to hang out it's got places to do school activities it's got cafes and, you know, roof terraces, whatever. And it's not working that way. Berliners generally, (laughs) I would say, have some suspicion of the building. Tourists, you know, they go on the route, but they're not sure what to think of it either. So it has not been a kind of success in the same way that the Reichstag has been. It does not seem to have um, unified in the significant ways that the Reichstag
0: did. Ah it's it's exhausting it's, isn't it It is truly an exhausting topic and I want I being mindful of your time I'm also going to move to another exhausting topic which is one of your last themes that you touch on which is the Berlin Airport project of the many decades uh, another project that was contentious and incredibly drawn out anyone who's tried to fly into Berlin frequently over the past couple of decades is probably aware of the large delays that took place in constructing a new and more modern Berlin airport. Um, just, it, it's a, an interesting um, topic to end on because it's so, it's, it's something that's very palpable for just the average citizen of, of Berlin and, and perhaps of the world who wants to visit Berlin. Um, you know, what do you think that these large-scale planning troubles were perhaps symptomatic of? How they might connect to the to the other architectural political debates that you talk about in the book that are more surrounding political buildings, buildings of the government, um, and, uh, and then after that, I think we can we can move on to sort of the the final um, final thoughts that you have in your book.
1: I mean, this story of the the airports—it could be its own book, right? It's such a complicated, drawn out, and I mean, it's really kind of a sad story too. Um, I I'm from Austin, Texas. That's where I grew up, um, and Austin, which has more than doubled in size over the past uh, 15 years or so, is you know kind of really becoming like it's it's a popular destination in a way that it wasn't when I was growing up. And I bring this up because we have a slogan keep Austin weird, that is kind of losing its its pungency as Austin becomes less and less weird, architecturally speaking, um, and in many other ways, too. But I think this is important when it comes to the airports, because I think that Berliners felt very affectionate of their several airports that they could fly out of, which were, of course, um, a legacy of the building's specific history, a legacy of, of the division of the city. Um, and they appreciated the, say, weirdness of the Tegel Airport, which was unlike any other airport in the world, um, in terms of its planning, there's there's really nothing quite like it. Um, and the kind of smallness and neighborhood feel of these airports is not at all present in this new international, you know, Brandenburg, Berlin Brandenburg Airport, which sought to kind of speak the architectural language of like fancy airports around the world. But the whole process was plagued by delays, by corruption, by controversy. And then <laughs> at the precise moment that the airport was supposed to open, the pandemic struck. And so now the woes are ongoing. The um, security lines are very, very long. Of course, the airport's suffering from staffing shortages like virtually all airports Um many of its systems seem outdated because it took so long to build it. And it was considered, it has been considered both a failure of public architecture and a failure of sort of private sponsorship, because at some point it was kind of privately held. And so it's led to, I think, a lot of, a lot of cynicism, um, towards public architecture. And one of the reasons that I wanted to end the book with these airports was to point to the fact that public architecture, government-sponsored architecture for the public is much more than just monumental projects in the center of a city embodying political aspirations, right? It's infrastructure in a lot of ways, if it, more than it is anything else. And so these airports kind of uh, point to the problems that are plaguing Berlin and Germany today, sort of misunderstandings of, of what the contemporary world is requiring of, of governments to, to help its citizens navigate it.
0: Mm. And you, you brought this back home sort of beautifully to your final point, which is on the ethical obligation of architecture and what these structures ultimately are meant to serve. Um, So it was really a pleasure to read and, and being mindful of your time, I want to, Uh, ask you a bit about your next project which we briefly mentioned and you also briefly mentioned the sort of masculinity of these projects involved in the book. Um, You mentioned that you would you were working on uh, a monograph that will explore women who left the field of architecture. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah I'll tell you about the the case study I've been working on. who is just really, really remarkable. Her name is Brigitte Dorchi. She was born in Berlin in 1921. She studied at the Technical University at the moment at which it was more or less an official Nazi party organ. Um, And then she became, after the division of Germany, she became a sort of West German um, bureaucratic architect. And she was sent eventually on a study tour to the United States um, to learn about democratic city planning principles along with 10 other um, young architects from West Germany. And while she was there, you know, she was kind of whined and dined and taken to meet all the most important architects in the United States, many of whom in fact were German immigrants. But what seems to have made the biggest impression on her was a meeting with Frank Lloyd Wright. And in short, <laughs> she has this meeting with Wright. She goes back to Germany, continues her work, um, in Munich as a, as a city planner, has a crisis, writes to write, asks for his help. He tells her to come to Taliesin West, his fellowship in Arizona, to come work with him and study with him. She does that. And then a few years later, she moves to Japan and becomes the first Zen master from Germany. And I cannot tell you how remarkable this person is. Um, this has been such an exciting project to do because first of all, she is virtually unknown in architectural history. Um, I, I discovered her in an article by one of my colleagues, Greg Castillo about the study tour and then started kind of digging for information about her in an architectural context. There really isn't any, but she's well known in the history of Zen because she was sort of a East West bridging figure um, who who did a lot for the reputation of Zen abroad, with all the complicated baggage that that requires, and I've it's it's just been such a wonderful thing to research her. Um, I'm very excited about figuring out how best her story will be told, and I have to say that while I originally intended for her to be one of a number of women that I look at in a in this book project, I'm starting to reconsider that. And this is partly because she is on her own terms, such a fascinating figure that tells us a lot about architectural history. It's partly because I am sensitive to the siloing of architectural history about women. And I don't know what to do with that yet, but I I don't, I don't know that I want to cast her as a woman architect, (laughs) that's a complicated thing to do. And so these are things that are kind of on my mind right now, as I find out more about her and sort of pursue all the avenues that I can
0: to get information about her. Mm -hmm. Sort of the beauty and the challenges of taking on a new project is that it's constantly shifting shape, but I'm looking forward to seeing what it becomes thank you so very, very much for joining me today. I appreciate the opportunity to read and to learn more about your book and your research process and about your future work.
1: Thank you so much for having me.